Chelsea Fairless. And today we're talking about the second episode of season four, The Real Me. But for once, we're not alone. Yes, today we are joined by a very special guest. You've seen her on Community, you've seen her on Glow, and in many, many films, including Somebody I Used to Know, which is now streaming on Amazon Prime. We are so thrilled to welcome the fabulous Allison Brie. Hi! <laughs> So we never have celebrities on the show, but you actually listen to every outfit, which we so appreciate. Chell, I think this should be our criteria for guests moving forward. Oh, absolutely. Beyonce, if you're listening. <laughs> I'm so proud to be the first quote unquote celebrity fuckette to come on the show. You ladies bring so much joy to my life. And I'm so excited to talk about this episode, which is like my all time favorite episode. I was so happy that you hadn't covered it before. It is an iconic episode. I'm, I thought we had. So when you suggested it, I was like, fuck, we already did that one. But no, we've never done this one somehow. But before we get into this episode, I just want to get into one thing. How do you identify? Like, are you a Carrie? Are you a Charlotte? Like, what's your situation? I thought this might come up. And I, I feel conflicted because, first of all, when I used to play this game when I was in college, you know, and was, that was kind of like when it was the first time I can remember where me and my friends were playing the who, who do you identify as game, I was always the Samantha. It may surprise you to learn. <laughs> um, <laughs> Now that I'm married and in a monogamous relationship, I'm not sure if I should be claiming that. <laughs> Although upon rewatch of this episode, I was kind of like, yeah, I'm still a Samantha at my core. So maybe Dave is my Smith Jared. A, a forever Jared. Yeah. I identify as a Samantha as well, as a Samantha-Miranda hybrid. So I feel you. You know, it's okay to be a slut. You know how we do it, Allison. You, you're allowed to have a rising sign. So if you feel like a Samantha with, paradoxically, a Charlotte rising. Uh, I realize that I'm, I'm giving, like I'm serving Charlotte today, and I'm not trying to just copy everything that Chelsea says, <laughs> but I think Miranda is my rising, for sure. I'd certainly proudly wear my I'm a fucking Miranda hat all over town, as does Dave, because he stole mine. And then I had to order another one. <laughs> and I'm like, you're not a fucking Miranda. And then actually I thought about it and I was like, I guess he actually kind of is. <laughs> Allison, anytime you want merch, just slide into our DMs. We will happily. <laughs> we can get you another one of those hats. Allison is holding up shoes from our Every Outfit SJP collection collab. Um, gorgeous. I love that you have that. I have to confess, I don't think I have ever worn them on the street, just around my household. Yeah, no, it, they're too beautiful. Yeah. I don't want to ruin the souls. You don't want to accidentally have like a, and just like that episode one, like in the shower moment with those satin shoes. Exactly. I just keep them in my every outfit museum in the corner of my house. So shall we dive into this fabulous episode, which opens at Brasserie Eight and a Half, which was apparently the hottest place in 2001. Have any of you guys been there? No, I, I have not been there, but I was surprised to learn that it was located on the corner of right now and everyone was there. These are, they're not directions <laughs> that are easy to get you to your destination, but what a hot spot. <laughs> it's a rare Carrie Stanford scene, which as the seasons went on, as you know, Stanford was sort of phased out so much so that the previous episode we covered, uh, he didn't even make the first round of being introduced to the Russian. He was reduced to a second round of friends. That was harsh. So it's nice to see him back in the fold. Totally. Also, I, I love Carrie's outfit in this scene, which is a lot of layers and like, a tank top and then a bustier and then another bustier, like a corset or is it a large belt? I'm not sure. 
I think it's a large belt. Like, you know, when Diane Keaton wears the biggest belt in her closet, I think it's like one of those belts over a corset top. But the overall effect is very like Helena Bonham Carter with the pearls and the updo and stuff. It almost combines several eras of Madonna. It's giving kind of 80s like a virgin Madonna with the pearls, but then also very express yourself Vogue era Madonna with the bustier and the almost kind of suiting or kind of deconstructed suiting. Yeah, I love that. There's a lot of pearls for Carrie in this episode, but overall her wardrobe is sort of eclectic. Like after this, like this is the most extravagant outfit kind of until we get to the end of the episode. And then she's in a lot of comfy knits. Definitely. So Stanny and Carrie are both checking out this Norman Reedus looking man. And Carrie's like, you should go hit on him and Stanford's like the only way that I could be with that guy is if I paid him and then Carrie says there's no need for you to enter Hookerville and it was in this moment that I realized that that Carrie compulsively makes up fake problematic towns like remember <laughs> when she said that bisexuality was a layover on the way to gay town yeah and then Miranda was like oh yeah next to Ricky Martinville like this is a recurring thing in sex in the city and are these destinations you can get via Amtrak also it feels like Stanford was just kind of making an innocuous joke and Carrie's like listen to me look at me you don't see what I see. It's like, bitch, it's not that serious. It's actually kind of rude. It's like, I didn't ask you. Well, also for Carrie, there is, I guess as a sex and love relation relationship columnist, there is no uh, lower pit of hell in dating than being reduced to hiring a sex worker, I guess. I don't know. Things that would not fly today. Lest we forget not to also be rude, but that we will later learn that Stanford's boyfriend, Marcus, was po possibly used to be a sex worker because he was in that magazine. Yeah, that's right. Honcho, of course. <laughs> so maybe it was like extreme foreshadowing. Michael Patrick King's working on so many levels. So then we meet Lynn Cameron a fashion show producer played by the absolutely brilliant Margaret show. I think she's my favorite guest star ever, or it's a toss up at least with her and Kristen Johnson. Definitely. Yes. I'm sort of dressed as Lynn Cameron today in my black turtleneck. <laughs> yeah. You like Lynn are as essential as Valium or Velcro. It's a hell of an entrance. She comes in really hot. She asks Carrie to be part of this fashion show. I'm taking over Chelsea's role talking about the things that are happening. Please do. She makes a great I hate my role. joke about <laughs> about her her boyfriend, about her gay boyfriend, which is a fun connection that the two of them share in the moment. As they are both clearly homosexuals. A lot of people have parodied people in the fashion industry, but there's something about Margaret Cho's cadence, which is completely intoxicating. Let's just drop a little bit of the audio here. You're fucking doing my show. If I have to hunt you down, skin you alive, and have one of the other models fucking wear you. I'll call you next week. Yeah, I feel like nobody else could play this character. It's a, totally iconic, and it's like a breath of fresh air in the whole episode, and the way she's so like up in Carrie's face is really fun. And do we believe that this is the first time ever that Carrie's been asked to walk in a charity fashion show? That doesn't seem correct. That's an excellent point. And also, like, there's something very performative about Carrie's whole attitude towards that in this episode of just like me, a model, like who could ever imagine that happening? Which is why Margaret Cho is the great counterpoint who just keeps calling her on it being like, what the fuck? Yeah, totally. She is the ultimate New York fashionista. And today she would be walking in shows left and right. Like now you can't even find like normal models in fashion shows. It's just the real people. And now we're at the diner. I, I like that in season four, we're in a different position in the diner. We seem to be more towards the back of the diner. As the seasons go on, we're more in the, we get more and more frontal in this Soho diner. Even though all of them at this point, well, I guess except Samantha, live uptown. Which, Allison, I mean, maybe it's just a me thing, but I find it so puzzling that they all decide to meet every Saturday at a diner in Soho. Yeah, it definitely doesn't make sense in terms of anybody's geography. Sidebar, I was recently in New York 
wandering the streets and truly by accident walked by Carrie's brownstone, which is obviously now it's such an eyesore because they have like a plaque, you know, it's like blocked off and it's like, do not disturb residents. And also there's a crowd of people taking photos, but I just thought there was something kind of magical and kismet about the fact that I still, I've never lived in New York and still just on days wandering from one part of town to the next, I go, oh, I happened to stumble upon <laughs> Carrie's brownstone. It's as if my body directs me there. We, oddly, a few years ago, were staying at a friend's apartment that was also on Perry Street, diagonal from Carrie Bradshaw's apartment. And when we were there, yes, there are there is this velvet rope so that you cannot walk onto the brownstone steps and take photos. But they had a little donation box that I think was for an animal shelter. I don't know if that's still there. Yeah, it was interesting logic. It's like, if you're going to take pictures here on our front step, at least donate to our charity of choice, which, why not? I like that. I support that. I don't know if you saw this, Allison, but my favorite is when people go to the actual brownstone go, oh, there's a rope. And then they'll just walk three brownstones over to a, a brownstone that doesn't have a velvet rope. And they're like, <laughs> same thing. Uh, that's really funny. I will say that I was with Dave, my husband, then for the rest of the day, anytime we passed a brownstone, he was like, is that Carrie's brownstone? And I was like, no, babe, it's just the one, just that one. Yeah. (laughs) Did anyone else notice yet another McDonald's placement? Because Samantha goes, I had to pick up a guy so I wouldn't eat a a Big Mac, not just a hamburger, a Big Mac suspicious. I'm glad you brought this up because I would like to highlight the way also the word that she stresses is like her pronunciation is not a Big Mac. She's like a Big Mac. Like (laughs) I had to actually pick up a guy guy so I wouldn't get a Big Mac. I mean Kim Cattrall's performance does lean into camp at times, right? Like she's she's perfect, but it's little details like that that are what truly makes her Samantha. But this scene is basically establishing that she's on this organic journey and, you know, is trying to be healthy because she's getting nude photos of herself taken. I was under the impression that she's always eating organic and they're just kind of using that as a segue to be like, well, you look great. And she's like, well, I'm glad you think so because I'm going to take nude pictures of myself, which I love. It's more that Samantha just has disordered eating throughout this episode because I find the organic thing more of an excuse where it's like, well, I'm not going to eat anything fattening at this diner and I'm going to pretend it's because they have nothing organic. So I just have to have uh, some hot water and lemon. Which then also becomes a runner where it's just like, well, now you know that if you're starving yourself to be a model or take nude photos, you can only have hot water with lemon. Yeah. Carrie's basically like, I'm I'm so glad you're comfortable taking these nude photos because like, I'm not even comfortable enough to be in this fashion show that I've been asked to be in. And, and Samantha basically convinces her to do it when she points out the fact that she may get to keep the clothes. Which is a totally valid point and probably the reason that I would do something like that. <laughs> I have a question for you, Allison, because what Miranda does other than neg Carrie about her her modeling abilities is she is eating a salad with blue cheese or ranch dressing I know it's notoriously difficult to eat while acting mostly because you're gonna have to do it take after take so I just wanted to get your thought about Cynthia Nixon's commitment to eating that decision she made as an actor to eat throughout her coverage it's an excellent performance and it's a great choice because not only is she aggressively eating the salad, but the amount of dressing, you know, she really puts a pointed amount of dressing on the salad while like eyeing Carrie. And it's very in line with who she is as a woman and her ideals. And she has a line about after Charlotte says that she was a teen model for some like Ralph Lauren show. She's like, it's amazing. I could keep my food down. So it's kind of like, she really is committing to the bit in a very real way. And I would say that I'm guilty as a, you know, like of doing that thing that, that, that actors do where you just push your food around on the plate in a scene. Cause you're like, Oh God, because also I've gone the other way. I remember a notorious episode of community where there's a scene where we're all eating kettle corn. And it was like the prop gal brought in this giant bag of kettle corn. And we were all like, kettle corn in real life and just started eating it like between takes she was like guys you're gonna get full and of course like nine hours later we were like 
I don't want it. Why <laughs> do I have to keep eating the kettle corn in the scene? It's it's funny that we all consider ourselves a bit of Miranda, but this is a very Miranda doesn't get a lot to do this episode. Yes, you're right. Although I feel like one of the things that makes this such a great episode, I feel like you guys have highlighted this before as like a a, a quintessential ingredient for a great episode, is like nobody's in a relationship. So we get to kind of see everybody out having fun. And even though the main plot line is revolving around Carrie being in this fashion show, so everybody's side plots are kind of, uh, they're all smushed a little bit, you know? And at the same time, everybody does have a plot line. You know what I mean? Like, I I don't know. I kind of like, I like Miranda's arc in this. Although in this scene, she's so judgmental towards Carrie in this one scene, but we love her. I also want to just say, I love Cynthia Nixon's hair. You know, the Miranda haircut has a lot of iterations. I feel like this is a really good phase where it's almost like a mullet rectangle, but it's very flattering on her with the little bangs. It's definitely something that Miley Cyrus has rocked in the last few years. (laughs) So our girl Miranda is at crunch and some hot guy hits on her and she's taken aback because I mean, my nightmare is anyone talking to me at the gym, whether I know them, whether they're a stranger but he basically asks her out and in true Miranda fashion, she has a minor breakdown about it and has to call Carrie to vent. And this is where we get the, I couldn't help but wonder that doesn't have an, I couldn't help but wonder, right? It's a later that evening I got to thinking, do you want to read it, Lauren? Later that night, I got to thinking about Narcissus, a man so consumed with his own image, he drowned in it. Did he have no best friends to mirror back and help him reveal himself? And why is it that we could see our friends perfectly, but when it comes to ourselves, no matter how hard we look, do we ever see ourselves clearly? Thoughts, Allison? I think we have fleeting moments of seeing ourselves clearly. I do. But then, of course, it's like, in what way? Like, perspective exists, right? I can see myself clearly as myself looking at myself in this current minute, right this second. That doesn't mean I have, you know, like what other people are thinking about me at any given time. And in a way, maybe that's kind of the point of the episode too, is like, you shouldn't be thinking about that. So why don't you see yourself the way you want to see yourself? That sounds amazing. Now this is getting very existential. (laughs) No, it totally is. Look, if you want to pick yourself up and move to New York, if you want to exist in in a creative industry... If you think you're interesting enough to have a podcast with your best friend, there's you need a healthy amount of delusion. And I think Samantha is the embodiment of this. She has the right amount of being delusional where she's like, yeah, I'm just going to take nude photos of myself. And I think this is where Miranda ultimately in the episode gets sort of hoisted on her own petard because she's not delusional enough, which, by the way, do we think this guy is that hot? I find that he's on the same level of Cynthia Nixon personally. Yeah, no, I agree. Well, I was going to say, is Samantha delusional or is she right? Like she's got a hot rocking bod. Like, so she should love it. So the so you're right. It's like, what is the message? Because Miranda, it's somewhere in between where it's like Miranda should be allowed to have confidence even if she doesn't see herself as like a sexy siren, shouldn't she also be proud to be like, oh, a thing that makes me sexy is my sense of humor and my intellect. Like that's also a cool take, I think. It's normal to experience a level of dysmorphia in a culture that constantly reinforces a very specific beauty ideal, a beauty ideal that I would say is embodied by the character of Samantha. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes. And I think for a lot of people, it's like, yes, it is hard to shake all of that off and and look at yourself objectively, especially in in the Instagram age. There's people I know that are sort of able to just reject all of those standards. And I respect that and I envy them. But I do think that for a lot of people, it is hard not to project all of this shit on yourself all the time. Definitely. Also, I think circumstance has a lot to do with it. Like when the guy hits on her at the gym, 
there's a comical amount of like underarm sweat and neck sweat, which I, again, I really appreciate. And I love that Cynthia Nixon is so game for that kind of, you know, costume design. (laughs) Um, But like, but I, but I, but I can relate to that too, in terms of like, yeah, don't fuck with me at the gym. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, look, we, we needed for the episode, but as the guy says, he was clocking Miranda for months, like maybe time it where you catch her before she goes in or before she does the workout. Yeah, because I am Miranda at the gym. I mean, I'm not listening to She Bangs by Ricky Martin, which is, I think, another really like odd musical choice here, but something that makes it really, really funny. And it makes me feel like I am in a crunch gym. And that's one of my circles of hell is being in a early 2000s crunch gym where Ricky Martin is just playing on a loop. <laughs> I just wanted to highlight before before we go to Samantha, just to put a button on the the Miranda of it all. I just love the line she has to carry where she goes, you know, I get it. Smart, yes, sometimes cute, but never sexy. Sexy is what I try to get them to see me as after I win them over with my personality. And then Carrie gets her back and she goes, you win men over with your personality? But I think Miranda self-identifies as a smart person. Like it's a very, not going to say this doesn't exist now, but a very 90s patriarchal idea of like, you're the smart one, you know, you're the sexy one. All the girls in the clique represent something different. They act like Samantha doing a nude photo shoot is the craziest thing that someone could do. And it's not. It sounds like a perfectly reasonable thing. Samantha works in PR. I'm sure she knows a lot of event photographers. She clearly asked one to do some classy nudes with her. And who else is the photo assistant but Tony Hale, which is always lovely to see people on the come up who made their acting debuts on Sex and the City. Well, that reminds me, Allison, I wanted to ask you, you are nude on the poster for the film. Yeah. <laughs> that you are currently promoting. So you are you are a Samantha in that sense also. What was that like? Yes, much like Samantha, I've always been a very comfortable nude person. I certainly did a lot of streaking in college. Um, and there's a streaking scene that we have in the movie. And um you know, I'm very comfortable with that stuff. It's more taken me years to get my husband to wrap his head around my my comfortability with public nudity. <laughs> so he's not a nudist. <laughs> it's true. I will say he's really, he's becoming more and more open to it. So the day that we shot this streaking scene, we were like, great, we'll just have the onset photographer take some photos that day while we're out at this beautiful um, working golf course where people are playing golf <laughs> on other holes, just me and, and our onset photographer just like walked across this field in front in like sight also of our entire crew who's continuing to shoot the scene. And then I ran slow motion circles around him. But I do relate to Samantha in this moment of like, I was so nervous I wasn't so nervous, but I was certainly like, like as comfortable as I am nude, I was like, oh God, what is it going to be like looking at a thousand photos of me running in the nude, like with gravity and motion at play? Um, But actually looking through them and like finding some good ones, part of me was like, I want to keep this photo forever. Like I just turned 40 and it's like, do I, but it was 38 when we shot the movie and I go like, pretty damn good put it in your entryway just like samantha as samantha says when my tits are in my shoes i want to remember that i i had a hot bod exactly so back to the scene i would like to just point out (laughs) i appreciate that tony hale's character's name is tiger yeah and that can't be confused for any other name it's not like he's putting an interesting accent on tyler it's definitely tiger So they take some like hot and sexy pics of Samantha and then we get the walk and talk with Carrie and Char. Char is in a Burberry trench coat, of course, and Carrie is wearing it. I don't know. It's like a wintry Aspen vibe, but she's actually carried a fur muff and it's not the same fur muff that she has in an American girl in Paris, which means she has more than one of these in her closet. This is my favorite Carrie outfit in the episode. Final final fashion show outfit notwithstanding. I don't know why, 
this woodland sweater, like I, it seems like they're hiding a giant deer portrait, but like with this candy cane scarf, but I really like it. And I'm, it's only occurring to me now, even though I just watched this episode like three times this weekend, <laughs> it's sort of a cheeky, um, like they leave the Samantha scene with her doing the full frontal with her leg up and then cut to Carrie with this muff. It's like a funny muff pun. Oh, I did. I never even thought of that. That's a Patricia Field touch. Yeah. You've also watched the episode two more times than either of us. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's amazing. I'm nothing if not a, a B plus student. So Charlotte's like, there's something wrong with my pussy. I need to see a gynecologist or something. Do you know anyone? That's basically what she says in less vulgar terms. Yeah. Carrie's like, sure, here's my guy. Also, do you know anyone that could date Stanford? Because he's about to date a hooker. Just to really say it again in those words. I'm not, please, this is not my verbiage, but she's just like, if we don't, he's going to start dating hookers. Again, really elevating uh, the stakes of Stanford's narrative in a way that feels unfair. Well, it's also not great that Charlotte's reaction is hookers. Ew. <laughs> that doesn't hold up. Everything else in this episode holds up completely, I think. The, the disordered eating throughout as well. Not, not great, but period typical, I would say. At least it's sort of done as a commentary on fashion industry and the, I don't know. Diet culture. I don't know if that makes it better or worse. <laughs> yeah, diet culture. yeah. But this is all just a pretense to reintroduce Anthony Marantino, who has not shown up since he was Charlotte's wedding dress stylist. Again, <laughs> like Big, Anthony is someone whose career has shifted throughout the run of the show. Yeah, but we're so happy to have him back. And it's obviously so iconic that this is like the episode where they get set up. And obviously, we know where that leads. Horrifyingly enough. We did a Q&A for the 20th anniversary. And now it's coming up with the 20th fifth anniversary with Michael Patrick King. And that was the first thing we asked him or one of the first things we were like, wh wh why Anthony and Stanford? And his response was they were the last two left at the party, which doesn't make it better. No, that's even more dark and nihilistic. It's a pretty intense message to put out there to the singles, I would say. If you're the last man standing, you might just marry your nemesis. Well, from what we're seeing within Just Like That season two, you get two loves and you better have met them in your 30s if you want to be still be dating in your 50s. That's true. So Lynn calls Carrie. She ultimately convinces her to participate in the fashion show because Dolce & Gabbana wants to dress her. This phone call with Lynn is um, the birth of the term for... Your podcast lovers, fuck it, the iconic fuck it line. Yes, fuck it. And those are some picky Italians. Dolce and Gabbana picked me? Yes, fuck it. And those are some picky Italians. Yes, which we did have to answer because many people thought we were calling our listeners fuck heads and did not understand we were referencing Margaret Cho from this episode. How dare. Um, quick sidebar, did you guys watch the rom-com of the summer, Fire Island, starring Margaret Cho? Oh, yeah. That's another one that, like this episode, I watched Fire Island three times the weekend it came out. That's amazing. Yeah, she was so great in that. So now we're at Carrie's Fitting with Dolce & Gabbana, and of course her her stylist, for, or guy who works at Dolce & Gabbana, is played by Alan Cumming. There are so many, like, amazing cameos and guest stars in this episode. I truly didn't realize that when I picked it out. Um, and he's sort of, like, very um, belittling to her and is very, very much... Trot, 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 trot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> also, like, I like how he's using um, the the super inside fashion term, me liked. <laughs> <laughs> That's something that he says a lot in this episode. And later, Carrie is like, it's a fashion thing. And I'm like, guys, is it though? It's so good, though. I remember when I first saw this episode, I thought that Alan Cumming in that random 
Italian Evan Dando sidekick that he has, like we're actually Dolce and Gabbana. Like I was like, is this supposed to be them? But they just work at Dolce and Gabbana. Although that's not really explained. It's inferred. Yeah, I agree. I thought that they were supposed to be Dolce and Gabbana. But Alan Cumming plays Oscar, although he's just going by O now. Yes, I'm glad that they they clock that. When this photographer guy comes in, tell me that is an actor and this is not an actual famous photographer making a cameo in this episode. No, he seems to be a New York character actor, but I was going to ask Chelsea, who do you think he's based on? (sighs) It's hard to say because it seems like his main like artistic objective is like, showing the the beautiful gritty reality beneath the facade or something so i don't know maybe he's like a larry fink like or maybe he's kind of like more of like a roxanne lowett or someone that's sort of capturing like the excesses of the fashion industry in a sort of loose documentary style i will say his idea of gritty realism is just extreme (laughs) dutch tilts with the camera like i think his photographs so he's definitely played by an actor because the way he's playing a photographer is just tilting his camera in an extreme way that would not get the photos of carrie that he later shows carrie also this guy's kind of a dick (laughs) he is a bit of a dick but carrie is enamored with his talent she's a fan of his and he asks her out so she says yes And that brings us to Charlotte at the gyno. And this scene kills me because I cannot get over the hospital gown that she is wearing. It has like a bold shoulder. It has lapels. Like it looks like there was a Project Runway challenge where they're like, okay, guys, here's some hospital gowns and you have an hour. Like, what can you do? It's just so over the top and fun. Yeah, it definitely has a little puffy cap sleeve. And then we learn that, Charlotte's vagina is depressed and needs an antidepressant. She has vulvodynia, which I didn't really know was real, but I Googled it before this and was like, oh, it is. This very much feels like something that one of the women pitched in the writer's room. That like a friend of a writer had vulvodynia and sometimes you could just see the the gears working of what brought this to the episode. And I guarantee you one of the writers was like, my friend has a depressed vagina. And they were like, put that on the wall. As we're talking about Charlotte's vagina being depressed, I'm realizing that maybe you guys are right, that no one has a good storyline in this episode, except for Carrie. (laughs) It's so good. But I don't know why. It somehow feels balanced. Like, it's that everything is on theme. That's what makes a great episode, is that at least everything is on the theme. So even though... They're, all the other gals are sort of relegated to these side storylines about their bodies and their sexiness and their self-esteem levels. At least it's all feeding the same thing, so it's super cohesive. Yeah, our, I think what we're supposed to take from that is that because Charlotte grew up in such a repressed, waspy childhood and she doesn't, she's never looked at her vagina, that's why it's sad, because it doesn't have good self-esteem. And I will say, Kristen... Doesn't get a lot to do, but oh my God, is she a brilliant comedian when she does that? Ha ha, my vagina's depressed at the diner in the following scene. God, she's so good. Also, she is the one that curated that show of large scale vagina paintings. Like she's seen some shit. I love this diner scene. I think the writing is really great in this diner scene. And it really kills me too when she's talking about her vagina journal and the gal and Miranda and Carrier are doing impressions of what she might be writing in her journal. Dear vagina. Yeah, like it's a junior high journal. (laughs) I will say, Samantha brings the contact sheet from the shoot, and she wants Charlotte's artful eye. So Charlotte looks with a magnifying glass and then is horrified at what she sees. And she says, that's not very arty, but I would dare say that nudity is a foundational pillar of fine art since the beginning of time? Like, why is she shocked? Yes, that whole, let's let's not forget that. It, they were truly just like super up close. It was just full paintings of labia. Like, but this, she has a problem with like Samantha's leg up on a box. <laughs> no, it's totally, it's totally bonkers. So Samantha goes to get her portrait frames 
and totally me too's the guy that works in the frame shop, in my opinion, this is not appropriate conduct. It's the only person that seems to be immune to Samantha's sexual charms. Well, this is where we kind of learned that even though initially Samantha tried to say, I'm taking these pictures for me, it's just for myself, this is not about a guy, ultimately she still does want the approval of the male gaze and she wants to know that men are finding her sexy and the more random the man the better now carrie is on her date with fashion photographer guy i don't know his name i'm just gonna call him that and this is where we get the incredible iconic line sometimes i would buy vogue instead of dinner i felt that it fed me more which I relate to the sentiment behind this as someone that loves fashion magazines, but also very pro-Anna. When you say pro-Anna, do you mean pro-Anna Wintour or pro-Anorexia? Nice. Nicely done. Some might say it's one and the same, frankly. But this is what makes, like, Sex and the City at its peak, even its quasi-problematic lines, like, that writing is such a banger that you're like yeah the message isn't great but like oh damn it sounds good also it speaks to who carrie is like her quintessential essence i'm sorry it definitely is problematic in the light of today's lens but that's who this character is for sure i also like how in this scene the guy says how do you remember that it was the 90s as if the 90s like, this is this episode taking place in 2000, 2001? Yeah. Well, she also corrects him. She goes, no, 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 this was 1992, so nine years earlier? Yeah, he continues to be a little, like, condescending and icky, but that's fine. I'm happy to know that he and Carrie only kissed and did not go all the way, which is what we learned the next day when she arrives with Stanford at the fashion show. Yeah, I love Stanford's outfit. It is has the same color scheme as McDonald's. Yet another plug for McDonald's. It's just subliminal at this point. I like Carrie's like model off duty, just like a white denim jacket and her sweatshirt's like kind of tucked into her pants and her aviators. It's very, it's like, I, I like her trying to look like she doesn't care. She's just one of the real people. Well, also like the threadbareness of that gray sweater. I definitely have tried to embody that outfit in my in my life. It did not work out the same. But, you know, this is Carrie's really feeling herself in this brief moment. Again, this is what makes her a brilliant character is we bring her up. She's like, Stanny, I'm a model. And then we bring her right back down with an outfit change. Oh, also, I love how I mean, it happens right again in this moment where she's telling Stanford um, about how she asked them to put her in really high heels, which actually starts in the scene, the first scene with Alan coming in her fitting where she's like, put me in the big girl shoes. And it's like the high heels in this episode are essentially Chekhov's gun, <laughs> you know, like from, right. the, from the first time she says it and you're tracking it. Like upon rewatch, I was like, wow, they really clock it a lot of times. Not like, in this moment, she's celebrating it. They're going to put me in high heels. I'm going to be so small. That's what she's saying, right? I'm going to look small because I'm in really tall heels. Does she say small or does she say swall? Which I thought maybe you would enlighten <laughs> me that that was some slang about. I have no idea what she's actually saying. But I also want to note the fact that Carrie starts getting concerned about this show when she sees who else is modeling it in the show, which is Fran Leibovitz. And I cannot stand for this kind of slander. Like Carrie would know that this is a woman that has been on the Vanity Fair dress list like every year since the beginning of time. Like she would be psyched that Fran Leibovitz was in this show. Carrie would be psyched that Fran Leibovitz would be in the show, but Fran Leibovitz would never be in a celebrity fashion show is the thing. Well, you know what? That's not true because she was in a celebrity fashion show, which is where I think this plot line originated. But she was in a show that benefited some AIDS nonprofit, like in the late 80s, like at the high point of the epidemic and stuff. So it makes sense. But I don't think like that Fran Leibovitz is doing that. Like, what's that like red dress charity fashion show they always do? Oh, at the start of New York Fashion Week. Allison, have you walked in that? No, no, no. 
But if they would let me keep the dress, maybe. <laughs> it's pretty rude, Carrie's response to it. And it's classic. What it more is, is a reflection, right, of her own embarrassment that she got carried away thinking that even the quote unquote real people in this fashion show were going to look like models and that they had o only chosen her because she actually does look like a model, right? This is her whole conundrum in the episode. Am I beautiful enough to be a model or not? And this moment is confirming maybe not. <laughs> but then Stanford says, you're the most modeliest of the real people. Which I think is is a great place to be. Oh, that's right, because they segment her out when she's trying to go, I, I'm one of the models. And, and the, the assistant's like, no, 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 you, you go where the regular people go. <laughs> So we get some really good fashion cameos backstage. Orlando Pita does Carrie's hair. Kevin Aquan does her makeup. And uh, it's just so sad because he died like a year after this came out or something, which is just beyond depressing. But I love the insane product placement of his book, Face Forward. It's perfect. I also like that he's so sweet, like that in the world of Sex and the City, he's a fan of her column and says as much to her. And she just is like, nobody's listening to me. She just kind of dismisses him immediately. <laughs> he's like, we're going to take care of you and make you look beautiful. I'm a big fan. A very, very understated performance. It's it's so great and elegant. And then she just shits all over it and is like, nobody's taking me seriously back here. Yeah, a relationship that Carrie would have definitely wanted to to nurture going forward. Totally. So when they come over and tell Carrie that she's no longer wearing this blue dress that she thought was fabulous and is instead wearing this like bejeweled sheer underwear, um... Sarah Jessica Parker's delivery of I'm going to need to speak to someone <laughs> is probably like a real inspiration for me as an actress. <laughs> it's such a great moment. I love it. And she's like perfectly framed between the hanger and the underwear. Yeah. And she's just perfectly unhinged with her cigarette. And, and she doesn't want to wear the jeweled panties because she's like, this isn't my look. And it's like, it's not, not Carrie's look. I agree. Also, now there's a flip where like a second ago, she was sort of like disparaging these people, the other real people in the show by being like, I, like, those are the other real people. I'm so insulted to be grouped with them. And now it's more about like, I don't want to be embarrassed in front of them. I respect them and look up to them, which I like that it's taken that turn. In between all of this backstage, we get the introduction of Anthony to Stanford, which is way meaner than I remember this scene being. Like, Anthony just, he ghosts everyone. He just leaves. He shows up for about two minutes, is like, this is not someone I want to fuck, so I'm not even going to make small talk. Anthony, you can't even make small talk. You are a wedding dress stylist slash event person like you have to be personable to people like you can make good conversation for an hour kill some time yeah it's true he has a visceral reaction to stanford's appearance but to be fair he does not look like ed harris although i'm with you lauren you have to be a nice person regardless also i want to bring attention to samantha's outfit which feels like very Republican, like it's giving like Cindy McCain type glamour. Pulled straight from the politically erect episode. <laughs> totally. So first Stanford comes out and sends back Samantha because Carrie's having a freak out and Samantha's the only person that will tell her the truth. And much love and respect to Kevin Aquan, but her hair and makeup... Are <laughs> no psychotic. She has so much makeup on, and like a the the eye makeup. I guess it made me realize how, even though Sarah Jessica Parker does love to do that, the really charcoal rimmed eye in life, this level of eyeshadow is like really foreign to Carrie as a character and lip liner. It's very nineties. I mean, it's too very two thousand one. She's a she's a heavy blush gloss girl it's the hair that's insane 
and I don't know enough about hair to really have the terminology to describe whatever this is, but I have seen those bump it commercials on TV and it does feel like it's within the same world of whatever that is. Definitely. Also, we get a, a, a Heidi Klum cameo where she's like, do I look okay? <laughs> oh, yeah. She and Carrie Bond over being models. <laughs> and Heidi is wearing the Dolce & Gabbana dress that Carrie was originally wearing in the fitting. Also, in between all of these backstage on the runway scenes is a payoff to a joke when Carrie finds out that Fran Lebowitz and Frank Rich are walking in the runway and she says, oh, what, Dolce & Gabbana couldn't get Ed Koch? And Margaret Cho goes, no, Gucci got him. And then they announce the Gucci people walking. And it's that great spring-summer 2001 kind of corset dress that Kate Moss wore in the, the Gucci ad. And then former Mayor Ed Koch comes out. It's excellent. It is. I guess Fran said no. I think Fran said, fuck no. <laughs> yeah, except she typed it on a piece of paper and mailed it to Michael Patrick King. So it's Carrie's big moment. And this is where we get... I think maybe the most major needle drop in Sex in the City, perhaps, which is Cheryl Lynn's Got to Be Real, which I just can't imagine any other song being here. And it's finally Carrie's big moment. She struts out and we all know what happens. Takes a big tumble. The reason that this stands the test of time as my favorite episode is this moment. It truly makes me laugh every time. I know it's coming. I laugh out loud, and by the end of the episode, I tear up <laughs> like 30 seconds later. I mean, also, we get amazing line readings. Uh, Margaret Cho goes, fuck me hard, which is great. We get Stanford saying, oh, my God, she's fashion roadkill as Heidi Klum gets called out and walks over her. The asshole photographer comes in. Carrie's like, stop taking my picture. It's a very embarrassing moment for her. But because she's a real person, she picks herself up, dusts herself off. We get a classic Miranda, like, woo! As like there are foursome stands up and cheers her on in the crowd. And then I tear up every time watching <laughs> Carrie like own it. She makes an embarrassed face. She and Heidi high five. And then she maybe overstays her welcome at the end of the runway. She really <laughs> hits that beat at the end of the runway, a few seconds too long. I agree. I do love her voiceover when she is on the ground and she says, you know, I had a choice, right? I could stay on the ground and be embarrassed or I could do what real people do when they fall, they get back up. It's like, I mean, models have fallen on the runway many times. They all too have gotten up. There's not been one model who was just like, I'm done. My career's done. I'm just going to sit here. Everyone's going to just have to walk around me. But that's also, did you have a choice? Like, yeah, you were just going to stay splayed out for the rest of the, how many other designers <laughs> are we looking at as part of this show? Like, <laughs> I don't know. Security's just going to come pick her up like a early uh, PETA for a protester, just like pick her off the runway and get her off. Also, I, do, I agree that the Sherilyn needle drop is so great, especially because it plays through the end of the episode. Now there's like a mini montage of like how Carrie inspired all the other gals to be brave in their way. And then it also plays over the credits, which I feel like almost never happens. And I love that. Well, I have a little IMDb trivia about the end credits, but... Does it play over the full end credits? Because on HBO Max, it's cutting me off six seconds in. Does it flip into... Okay, well, we'll get into it. We'll get into it now, because I also was watching on HBO Max. And it, yes, after six seconds, you know, when you watch it on a streaming service, it'll just p punch you to the next episode. But I went back because... This is one of the only times that the end credits doesn't fade to black. It is over Carrie's closet the entire time. And at the very end of the credits, Sarah Jessica Parker opens the door again as if it's a callback to her husband at the end of Ferris Bueller when he opens up the door and says, what, you guys are still here? She doesn't say anything. She just smiles at the camera and, and closes the door again. Then the episode ends. What? Yes. <laughs> Okay, we got to go back and watch that. And we also glossed over Miranda's second date with the hot guy. So this montage of Carrie inspiring her friends. I think we could probably gloss over all of that. I mean, I will just say, I do like that, like, confident Miranda just says, 
I love my life. I love my friends. I love my job. And I love meeting new people. That's an amazing Cynthia Nixon, Allison. <laughs> and then the guy just doesn't kiss her, which I do think is especially brutal. Sorry, Chelsea. I know you wanted to gloss over it, but I will say, have, have either of you ever, I don't think I've ever been fully left hanging, like gone three quarters of the way in for a kiss and someone didn't reciprocate. That's brutal. But yes, it's the fact that she was too confident of why he ultimately lost. He got the ick from Miranda because she was feeling herself too much. He got the ick. He likes his women with low self-esteem. <laughs> he wants to be the one to tell them they're sexy. Don't think it about yourself. Also, Charlotte finally looks at her vagina. Brilliant costuming here also because I love that she's wearing this robe with big like pink blooming flowers. It's very Georgia O'Keeffe. And it's just another one of those perfect Patricia Field details. And I just like that she got dressed up to look at her vagina. It's very Charlotte. And Carrie gave Samantha the confidence to order a hamburger. And then she tips the guy extra after he sees the photo of her and says, nice ass. Which I like that she displays the photo just like right in the front entryway of her apartment. I like to think that Samantha Jones has a Yelp account and it's all based around how delivery people either comment or don't comment on her nude photograph in her hallway. I like that. Five stars if they do, two stars if they don't. Speaking of stars, shall we rate this episode? How many Manolos are we giving this? You're giving it 10, Allison. It's clear that for me, it's a 10 out of 10 Manolo situation, but I'm very curious to hear your thoughts. Yes, I also think it's a 10 out of 10 situation. The fashion show is brilliant. The cameos, the guest stars, it, it has the best, it's the best that Sex in the City has to offer, truly. I don't want to descend, so I will go with 10 out of 10 as well. Just for the amount of guest stars, right? Throughout the series, we get great guest stars, but all in one episode, I don't think there's a... There's another episode that rivals this one. All the guest stars and cameos really make sense. They don't feel so random as like, sometimes there's random stunt casting like- um, Ginger Spice? Yes, when Ginger Spice didn't play herself in that episode. Jerry Hollowell. I feel like that's a random one where you're just like, how did that come to, somebody was like, we could get Jerry Hollowell. I personally love that mixture of like real world stunt casting and then stunt stunt casting. I like when it's models and real people. <laughs> so, Allison, you have a film coming out on Amazon today. Somebody I used to know. This is the second film your husband, Dave Franco, has directed you in, but is your first collaboration as writers together. So what inspired you both to write this film? Well, you know, I think that after we made his film, The Rental, together, that was such a fulfilling uh, experience for both of us. We had acted together a couple times, um, but that was our first time working together in this new capacity with him as director and me as an actor. And I, I, I don't know, it was, it was like a totally different experience for the two of us really working together and seeing how well we work together and how much we're on the same page and really kind of being there for each other on set in a different way. So I think it was really working on that that made us feel like we wanted to do something else together. And I have written a couple films with Jeff Baina. So I had, you know, we had both been writing with separate writing partners and felt like let's write something together. And and I love rom-coms. It's one of my favorite genres. And I think Dave wanted to go really far from his first film, you know, into his second film and kind of that one was a horror movie and kind of go all the way the opposite direction. And also, you know, we wrote it in 2020 in that moment during quarantine and everything. It's, it's the type of movie that we wanted to watch. Like for me, like sex in the city, I feel like rom-coms fill that comfort space of like things that you want to watch over and over again, even though you know how they end, you're excited to see the characters go on the journey. So we were re-watching a bunch of like our favorite rom-coms from the 90s year when Harry Met Sally's and Sleepless in Seattle and My Best Friend's Wedding. And uh, and yeah, we wanted to kind of dive into all the normal rom-com tropes, I guess, and update them to for now. Yeah, I would say that we were lucky enough to see the film and to describe it for others, 
it's kind of like if my best friend's wedding, um, if people had actual human reactions to that situation and not <laughs> what was displayed in that movie. Thank you. Uh, I want to say again that I love the movie My Best Friend's Wedding. It's one of my favorite, favorite rom-coms. Us too. Totally. But yes, and it is, we're, but we're paying a lot of homage to it for sure. And sort of, yeah, kind of putting <laughs> the characters in a similar situation and then to, to look at a story where there's no villains, you know, where every person in the story is just like a complicated person with an interesting emotional history. And they're all trying to navigate a confusing situation. And in that way, maybe there are some surprises for the audience because it's not always going to go exactly the way that it might have gone in the rom-coms that we've seen in the past. I want to talk about the cast a little bit, which is very stacked. We have Jay Ellis, Kiersey Clemens, as well as Amy Sedaris, which obviously thrilled us. So as an executive producer, did you require at least one Sex in the City alum in the film? Absolutely. And, you know, we put a bunch of feelers out. Uh, <laughs> no, Amy Sedaris was like a great happy accident. We were so lucky that she said yes to essentially doing this cameo in our movie. I think, you know, we wrote the role for Danny Pudi, who I worked with on Community, and even parts like my mom is played by Julie Haggerty. And we wrote that role with her in mind, but with no idea as to whether or not she would say yes to doing it. Um, I've been a big fan of Jay's uh, all through the run of Insecure. I think he is so excellent and very attractive, and uh, which is quintessential. Yeah, not that you knew this, but you caught him at an excellent time coming off of Top Gun Maverick. And that is kind of, that is pure luck because we all know they shot that years ago and it just took so long for it to come out. But oh my gosh, I love that movie so much. Um, but I think Jay's great because that character is really complicated and we wanted someone inherently forgivable, <laughs> you know, but not, I don't want to say likable. I hate that term, but like you, you want a guy that you can kind of get back around onto his side. And I feel like Jay has that to him and Kiersey Kiersey Clemens is also like the perfect embodiment of this character that we that we kind of made up. And then we were kind of looking at the landscape of young actors and we were like, oh, she is her, <laughs> I think. She's incredible. It's always delightful to see her in a movie. You kind of touched on this before, but just to wrap up, what do you think makes for a good rom-com? And did your, like us, 10,000 hours of viewing Sex and the City impact your view on the genre or maybe what you wanted to put on screen? I mean, I guess it's got to be about sort of being able to identify with the characters, even if they're doing things things that aren't always the smartest, best choices. And maybe that is some part of why we connect to Sex and the City so much. You know, I didn't really watch Sex and the City while it was airing. I probably was getting into it in college kind of right, I mean, or after, like when it was just off the air. And there were certainly phases where I would always go back to it every time I went through a breakup, you know, when I broke up with my boyfriend who was like my big boyfriend, then I would go watch the big episodes when I broke up with my like Aideny boyfriend, then I would go back and watch those episodes. So I feel like as, as much as looking back at it now as a show, it can sometimes seem so like over the top and cartoonish and we're all very judgy of a lot of Carrie's choices and the sometimes immature way in which she handles some of these moments. It it also is at the time was really identifiable and it kind of like as a person, you know, when I was in my early 20s watching it, I felt like it felt very relatable as I was currently making a lot of dating mistakes. But I hope that people can identify with like that idea that we're all flawed, we're all kind of working on ourselves. And sometimes even when we know something isn't the right thing, we have to kind of get through it to get over it. Yeah, absolutely. I think you guys really succeeded and I think everyone should go watch this film. I want to say this to you, Allison, but once everyone else watches the film, they'll get this as well. I would totally watch a show called Pie Hole about foods that fuck. Thank you. Well, I'll put it on the list. Maybe we should pitch it. Yeah, I mean, the way that IP works now, I mean, it's existing IP because you brought it up in a fictional film. Why not? Spinoff. 
foods you can fuck the you is like an asterisk okay so it's it's foods so it's foods you physically can fuck not foods that look like they fuck we were more thinking foods you could literally fuck like a carrot or a donut (laughs) the scary thing is we're not that far off on the reality landscape and i think that's such a specialty and child and i talk about this all the time in movies of like creating media within movies that feel real and i think you guys did a great job it's probably because it's like we're not we're poking fun at it but it comes from a place of love i watch all those fucking shows like that's why it's in there you know what i mean because i I it's like it's like if great british baking show and survivor had a baby yeah (laughs) i mean again would watch thank you for having me ladies this is truly it's the highlight of my press tour this is like a real pinnacle for me (laughs) getting to be on the pod huge fan i love you gals so much and you 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 i I, maybe i said this before but you bring a lot of joy to my life and i appreciate you yes we love you too please come back anytime just to remind the listeners, somebody I used to know is now on Amazon Prime. So go support our girl. Go support Daddy Jeff Bezos. Lauren and I will be back next week. But for now, we must say goodbye, fuckettes. Thank you for listening. Bye. Bye.